Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. U.S. and Canadian markets have continued rallying in February, continuing the green scene in January. With several large-cap companies continuing to cut their workforce, what could this signal about future earnings? And which sectors should you keep an eye on for future growth? Also, what is next for crude oil, copper, and precious metals? Joining host Brian Borsakowski today to explain his investing method and where to consider your next position in North America is Fidelity North American Equity Class Portfolio Manager Darren Lekakirker. In addition to North American Equity Class, Darren also co-manages Fidelity Global Natural Resources Fund and manages the equity sub-portfolio of Canadian Balanced Fund, among others. Darren shares today that he has a high-quality investing style, investing in companies that have the potential for a high return on invested capital and rising return on invested capital. He'll also touch on the typical Canada-US split in his fund. This year, Darren is keeping an eye on good companies that underperformed in their earnings last year because of high inflation, as well as companies that are high growth areas, such as tech, who had large drawdowns and are now ready to rebound after changing their business culture through restructuring or reducing costs. Darren also notes that he hopes there will be more focus on individual company fundamentals overall this year, rather than macro headlines. Also, Darren and Brian discuss opportunities in Canada's energy sector, the appeal of rail companies, and what he's hearing from companies in the many daily meetings he has, among other topics. Today's podcast was recorded on February 9th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So let's start off with your outlook for 2023. We've seen, you know, markets uh, are doing well this year so far, but uh, there's still a lot of economic volatility. Where do you think things economically markets could be headed over the next 11 months? Sure. Well, let's consider the path, right? Like last year was terrible uh, and for a lot of good reasons, right? We had like high and persistent inflation, the Fed raising rates, a, sh- a war and a recession in, in Europe and China um, closed. And so I would say coming into this year, things look a lot less bad, right? I mean, I think it looks like inflation has peaked last year and is coming down and that the Fed is much closer to, although while still raising rates, is closer to where the terminal uh, rate will be in this cycle. Uh, and that Europe, with natural ga- better weather, natural gas prices coming down, has avoided Um, a worst case outcome on a very deep uh, recession uh, and that China has reopened. And if we we look at like mobility data and early sort of indicators, things things look like they are starting to get better there. So I think things will look a lot less bad. I think earnings have come in. It's been maybe not as bad as, uh, as some people feared. And I think that sentiment was just terrible. And so as a result, we've had a strong start to the year. I think for the rest of the year, it's it's uh, look, it's hard to say. I, I think that it should probably be a a choppy year, like maybe a little bit flattish. And I think that 
you know, I love that as a portfolio manager and as someone who's focused on stock picking, um, because I think it should be a year where it could be maybe a little bit less about the macro and more about individual company fundamentals. And I think we're seeing that in the current earnings season, we're seeing like, you know, stocks that are uh, performing well uh, and really cheap doing well. Uh, and so you can add a lot of value and alpha to, to funds through, uh, through individual stock picking. So I think that that theme should continue throughout this year. That's great. And lots to dig into here. And, and I wonder just um, one thing that's interesting about your fund and which, which we'll talk more about is that you invest in um, U.S. companies and Canadian companies. It's a North American fund. And so you're watching the economics. I mean, I'm sure, you know, all the fund managers are watching the economics of both countries, but you're particularly, you know, paying attention to both as this is your purview. And I wonder, um, we saw uh, the Bank of Canada say they're going to pause rates. Um, we saw uh, big job gains in the U.S. A lot of people think the, U the Federal Reserve could increase rates. What do you think, based on kind of you know what you're seeing about the divergence of these two central banks? Could that have an effect on companies in 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 both countries? Oh, it's a it's a good point. I think for sure for sure it will. But keep keep in mind, like so for me, I'm really focused bottom up on individual companies. A lot of the even the Canadian companies I own do have a big U.S. business as well. So I do think though you've got a good point that I I would expect a stronger performance from the U.S. economy than Canada, and some of the reasons for that are um, it's less cyclical, and they have less exposure to higher interest rates in terms of like adjustable rate mortgages as we do in Canada. What about just opportunities in 2023? When you're looking at companies, um, what companies, you know, not necessarily specific companies, but sort of broadly, what kinds of companies look the most interesting to you in this kind of environment? Yeah. So there's so. Uh, there's been a few themes that I think are really interesting that I'd love to talk a little bit about. And so one of those themes is looking at companies that are good companies, but underperformed in their earnings last year because of high inflation. Uh, a second theme, I'll go into the, in a little more detail in the first, but a second theme is companies that are exposed to uh, China in the China reopening. And then the third theme is companies primarily in technology, um, or other growth areas where they stock got absolutely crushed, like down like 70% plus, where they've actually sort of changed um, the business culture uh, by restructuring, reducing the, the costs, and maybe looking for some additional areas of revenue in, in certain cases. So let me circle back to the uh, inflation theme. So there's a lot of companies where they were hit by rising costs of goods, short like supply chain problems, rising costs of labor, and they were unable to raise prices quickly enough, and they saw their margins and their earnings compress. And I think that as we uh, expect inflation to come down and we expect disinflation, the companies that do have pricing power are able to recover their earnings from this. And I think you get a double win. You get a double win in terms of earnings going up and the multiple on the stock recovering. And here's a few examples of this would be, for example, would be MedTech. And so MedTech, so think of companies that make implantable parts uh, for people like hips and knees, and the cost went up on them a lot. Uh, they weren't able to get their pricing up, but these companies um, should be, there's strong demand here, there's secular growth, and they should be able to increase prices this year. Some of the commodities will actually see deflation, meaning go down, and gross margins should recover. There's really nice um, organic growth outlook as a result of demographics and new innovative uh, product cycles. 
Um, another area here is auto parts. So think about it, no one could buy a, a new car for the past couple of years because of supply chain issues, lack of chips. So a lot of that um, is looking a lot better into 2023. And so we should see a recovery. And so just to put some numbers on that, if we think about what's the normal amount of US autos sold in a year in the US is normally like 17 to 18 million. And for the past two years, it's been 12 to, to 14 million. So there's a lot of pent up demand where they can benefit here, the auto parts companies. Uh, and I say the auto parts companies, not the car producers, because the car producers actually really benefited in terms of pricing, stronger pricing because of the lack of volumes, but the auto parts companies got hit because they didn't get that pricing advantage. And actually their costs went up due to supply chain problems. The war then exacerbated it, commodity prices went up and a lack of volumes. And we could see these issues um, improve a lot this year. Um, so those are two areas that I, that I find interesting on the inflation theme. On the China reopening theme, I think companies that make in mining and metal, for example, copper or commodity chemicals are really well positioned. And then the third theme I talked about um, was companies that have greatly improved their, that one, the stock price is down huge, and two, they've greatly improved their cost structure. And as demand increases, we could see much better profits and, and management teams have more of a focus on profitability. It's more, more within software uh, and, and uh, media and communications. Let's let's carry on the technology um, sector a bit here, uh, it, which is you know IT is your biggest um, sector in your fund, and uh, and that has been in the news. Lots of cost cutting, um, slower growth. How do you sort of view the tech sector these days? And and um, is there an opportunity there? Just what you're saying because they have cut costs already. Yeah, so I do believe there's an opportunity here, and I would like to just point out. Uh, for me, the way that I invest in technology is probably maybe a little different than some people think about it. I'm not in the sort of very, very high growth, unprofitable companies for the most part. And mostly what I own is high quality, large companies that have nice growth, wide margins and generate a lot of cash flow. And so my largest position on my top 10 is Microsoft. And so the investment thesis when I bought the company and I've held it for several years is the company's really well positioned on a number of key themes like productivity, right? Every company that we meet with today, and I was just in a meeting with a CEO right before this meeting, actually of a software company, not Microsoft, but a different one. And uh, they're focused on productivity, right? Because they're getting hit with inflation. They need to improve their margins. So I think Microsoft is very well positioned there in terms of cyber, in terms of the cloud, in terms of digitizing processes. AI is a very big uh, theme clearly this week. So here's a company that you know, I really like. I think it's it's very, continues to be very well positioned. Another one is Constellation Software, which is in my top 10. I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with the founder uh, and CEO of the company in the, the uh, fourth quarter of last year. And I I'm really impressed with the company. One of the things I really love, I talked about alignment with management teams, and they have a policy here where 75% of their after-tax bonuses, they are they invest in shares of the company for all the senior management teams. So I really like that. The company has historically grown at like 20 to 30 percent top line and bottom line, uh, primarily through uh, M&A, through buying other vertical market software companies. Uh, so these are the types of, of companies that I'm invested in. It's um, highly profitable, not as expensive. Uh, and then I think the more minority is, is what I just talked about, which is companies where they may have been in the previously in the high flyer camp that have seen their stocks go down huge and have made like significant changes to the cost structure as a result and are better positioned going forward.
You mentioned, uh, you know, China and, and commodities uh, potentially benefiting from that. So when you look at Canada's energy sector, um, are there opportunities there? And maybe you can speak to your, you know, your thoughts and positioning in, in that sector. Yeah. So I'm really excited about the China reopening. And so chi like China was shut down for um, for a long, a long time now. Right. And so they're as they're starting to reopen. Um, I think that we could see economic activity pick up. And so I'm excited for companies that are leveraged to that. So what's most leveraged to that? It's actually copper. Um, and so I'm more excited for probably for copper than I am for energy. Um, I've talked in the past about uh, longer data demand for copper from the energy transition, right? As we transition from a, from to a low carbon economy, it's very, very copper intensive to produce electric vehicles, um, to... Uh, add renewable power, and then the supply is really tight. We see that today in terms of extremely low inventories of copper, um, but also it takes forever to, to build a new mine. One of the big mines that's supposed to come on this year is, is by a Canadian miner called Tech Resources. The mine's called Carbada Blanca II. It's in Chile. And they bought a company in 2007, Ore Resources, when Tech Resources was called Tech Cominco, and the mine just going to come on this year. So it just shows you how long it takes to bring on new supply. It's very tight. And with China reopening, there could be higher cyclical demand. So I think that's really attractive. Uh, you mentioned energy. Uh, I think with energy, uh, I think energy, the supply is also extremely tight. Last year, we had the uh, the SPR, the, the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve, releasing barrels that, that has ended. Um, I think Russia still could potentially have supply disruptions. Uh, and then we need to also think about like what happens, do we have a recession, which would certainly crimp demand a little bit. Having said that, I do think supply is tight. I think that the, the companies, the um, energy producers are not expensive and are returning a lot of cash back to shareholders, which, which is attractive. But I would place um, copper as something that's more levered to the China reopening theme as, as more attractive. Any other sectors that you're, you know, I'm keeping an eye on all sectors, I'm sure, but that, that look attractive, uh, you know, in the months ahead. Yeah. So another one on that China reopen theme and within resources is also commodity chemicals. And they're focused on specific companies. Uh, and I'm looking for companies that have sort of idiosyncratic drivers to increase their cash flow and where I think there's, there's asymmetric sort of upside, like much higher upside than there is downside. Um, and there's some individual company catalysts. Um, that I'm focused on that can increase the cash flow there. So some of the other sectors, though, I, we can talk about. Um, I'm interested in in rails, and so I've talked about rails in the past. Um, I'm in particular, I prefer the Canadian rails to the U.S. rails, and here's why. Structurally, I think they're superior, and that is because they have a longer length of haul, so that makes them less less competition with trucks, and so they have better pricing power. The other thing is, if you think about their ad markets in the U.S. Class One rails. They, a portion of their volume is for thermal coal, which is used to, to uh, make power, and that's being kind of phased out, right, as people move more um, towards renewable power and, and uh, worry more about carbon. So I think the Canadian rails are attractive. I also think for CP Rail, they have a proposed merger um, with Kansas City Southern, which, uh, if it closes, would be extremely attractive, very accretive to increase uh, earnings for the overall company. So I think rails is another sector I find attractive. Um, some of the other uh, big sectors, I would say, so um, China reopening, technology, what have we not talked about? Consumer, I think within consumer, there's some interesting consumer products. I think 
I think the sector was actually just really beaten up and left for dead. And I think you can buy some of these companies where they're already pricing in a recession. And so we're doing a lot of due diligence. We're, we're um, looking at the company. We're meeting with management and trying to um, decide which companies will, will do really well. And especially if we can buy them really cheaply, we think that's um, very attractive. Also within healthcare, I like the, the I mentioned med tech earlier, but I also like life sciences and tools. Um, so there's a few more and, and uh, you know, with that, we can get into your next question. Yeah, um, I mean, you mentioned meeting with management and, and you had a couple uh, executive meetings, um, you know, with, with tech companies. I wonder how many, how many um, uh, you know, executive meetings do you, do you have in a week? It sounds like you meet with a lot of management teams. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in a good week you're doing, you know, anywhere from like one to five meetings per day, depending on the day. I mean, sometimes you could, you could have a really heavy day where you're maybe doing eight, eight meetings per day. Um, but listen, I really enjoy it. It's an it's a interesting aspect of this job, and it's a really important point, uh, part of my investment process. So my investment process, just to review, is meeting with people who run companies, so CEOs, CFOs, uh, and speaking with our, uh, our analyst team um, a lot upstairs who are experts in their field. So that's primarily the, the, the biggest part of the investment process. And so I kind of think of it as like a continuous learning process. You're learning something about an industry a company every day. And so I, yeah, we just met with this big um, software company that just completed a big acquisition. And we had a chance to talk with the CEO about what's the integration plan over the next, uh, over the next short while and, and ask them some, also some bigger picture, long-term questions about the, the business. So generally, I mean, that's, that's a lot of meetings with, with executives and companies. What are you hearing from companies, whether it's about earnings or just kind of the economic picture? What, what are they sort of more generally talking to you about? Yeah, so one of the big things we're asking about is demand right now. How strong is demand? Are you seeing any sort of drop off in demand, any, any weakness? And, and most companies are saying, you know, we're not seeing anything yet. And also we're talking a lot about inflation. Are you seeing inflation? And if so, are you able to um, raise prices or do you see deflation? And how can you, how is that gonna impact the business? And then as we've come through earnings, a big part of fourth quarter earnings is companies set their, their guidance uh, for earnings for 2023 to the market. And you know, here's the revenue we expect and here's the earnings we expect. And then we tip, we for the companies we're interested in, we follow up with management teams and we ask them, what are the assumptions that you're putting in your guidance? And it's really interesting. There's big divergence now in those assumptions. Some companies are assuming that there will be a recession in the US in the second half of the year and others are not. Some companies are assuming that they will um, see revenue growth benefit from China reopening and others are not because they're, they're seeing it now. And so on balance, you know, we prefer to be invested in the companies that have more conservative or more achievable um, assumptions in their earnings and because companies go up when they crush those earnings expectations and that's an attractive area for investment. Let's let's talk about the fund itself for a bit. Um, it is an interesting fund because you're combining uh, Canadian and North America into one. How do you um, uh, you know split those two? Do you have you know allocations that you try and hit for both? And how do you kind of approach um, you know both markets? Hey, right. Uh, so we started the fund in 2015, and we wanted to start a fund that was um, both U.S. and Canada, but primarily U.S. So the target over time is 70 U.S., 30 Canada. Uh, and for me, the way that I approach it is I, I don't stick right to that target or I don't like adjust it based on my economic projections for different countries. It's more based on best ideas. And so I want to own 
the best ideas in each country. Uh, and so that's, that's what's driving it. That's what I think is interesting about it. The other thing I think that's really interesting, I think North America is a super attractive place to invest versus the rest of the world. Uh, the US has been the best place to invest throughout uh, history. Uh, and I think it continues to, I think North America continues to look good. So why is that? I think in terms of energy, self-sufficiency, I think, uh, and food, I think North America is you know, independent and extremely uh, well-placed. I think in terms of uh, history of innovation, like look at Silicon Valley uh, and look at all the, the big tech companies in, in the US, it's outstanding compared to any other region in the world. Uh, and then also I think look at the, the politics, even though people do get um, upset over politics, politics is pretty stable um, considering what's happening in the rest of the world. And then last point I'll mention is demographics. Um, the demographics for US and Canada uh, in terms of number of, uh, of workers and growth uh, in that is actually much better than Europe or Asia. And so that's, that's also attractive. I think you mentioned something earlier when we chatted before this that was interesting that I think is worth mentioning is you actually have a big portion of your own retirement and your own investments in this fund. Um, uh, maybe talk a bit about that and why. Hey, hey, thanks for that question, Brian. So yeah, so last time I checked, I was the second largest owner of the fund. And so um, I used to be the largest owner. So I like to say that. So now I have to say the second largest owner. But I'm the second largest owner of the fund. So for me, it's like by far and away my largest personal financial uh, investment. Uh, I don't do it for a marketing point because it's you know hugely material to me. It's more to save for my own uh, retirement and, and for my own you know family's goals, right? I've got two young kids and some point they're going to go to university, right? I hope so. So, uh, so, so that's why. Um, that's great. And uh, within the way you manage the fund, does currency impact how you look at U.S. Canadian companies, or are you more more focused on the prospects of the individual businesses? Definitely the latter. I'm more focused on on uh, the bottom up prospects. Um, having said that, in terms of the currency, it's look the funds like. Uh, 68, it's 62% US, 38% Canada today, and tends to be more uh, US than Canada. I think that's good over time. The US currency is, is less cyclical and more stable than the Canadian currency, so it has, a, has the impact of reducing volatility, so I like that. Um, and then just thirdly, just on that point, I think that, like for me, I'm really focused on bottom-up stock picking. And you know why is that? I think it's because, one, I think that I can have more of an edge on bottom-up stock picking than I can on consistently calling the macro. And for me, I really want to have an investment process that's that's one that works and two that is repeatable so I can have repeatable investment performance. And I again, that's why I focus more on the micro than the macro. Um, another question is about AI. It's been in the news a lot. Um, do you see more opportunities in AI at a grant at a general level or is it something to monitor? Yeah. I think it's something to monitor. I think it's a positive uh, for some companies, I think one thing that's really interesting that's early to say is could this be the start of a new um, investing investment cycle for computing? And, and um, look, every company has to think about this because I think every CEO is going to be asked by their board about AI given chat GPT in the news, given the, the Microsoft uh, demo that was this week. And so I think that that could spur additional inv investment in, uh, in AI, uh, and I think that will be good for those uh, companies that have leading, um, you know, leading investments and leading offerings in, in AI, as well as cloud offerings, because that's where the AI will, will run off, right? Like the big cloud platforms. 
Another question is, what is your cell discipline? Right. Uh, so my cell discipline is uh, it's primarily and hopefully one. So one, whenever I buy a company, I have an investment thesis. It should be like one or two sentences. It should be you know very uh, clear and easily communicated to a layperson. And so one, if that investment thesis uh, is correct and, the, and hopefully it is and the stock goes up, then I sell. Or two, if I receive new information where I think it invalidates the investment thesis, um, then I sell. And then sometimes three, if I just find a much better company uh, with a more attractive investment thesis, then I might sell it to buy that one. But in that case, typically it needs to be much better because I t tend to know and understand better what I already own than what I don't. Just, just on your investing style, um, do you consider yourself growth or value or a combo? How would you describe yourself? I call myself high quality. And so what does that, what does that mean? That, that means investing in companies that have high return on invested capital and rising return on invested capital. They have uh, a competitive advantage that's sustainable and ideally growing. Um, I talked about railways, right? And that's a monopoly business with high return on invested capital. I talked about software, so I would say same thing. Monopoly business, high return on invested capital. Um, secondly, I focus on, on the, the management team of high quality. I kind of outlined this a little bit earlier. Uh, and so I think it's different than growth or value, but if you had to, to bucket me in one, it's, much, it's closer to growth than it is to value. Well, I, th I think what is also interesting about this fund is that it's pretty concentrated. Like North America and Canada, uh, North America, Canada, US, there's a lot to choose from, yet your portfolio has something like 60 stocks, 50, 60. Why take that approach when you have this entire universe in front of you? Yeah, I think you can only have so many great ideas. And so for me, one of the things that I try to do is every is periodically think what are my top three ideas that I'm most excited about uh, where we see the highest return potential and the lowest downside potential and make sure that I have large positions in those funds generally the top 10 names in the fund are between sort of 30 to 50 percent of the fund and as you mentioned it's it's uh, today it's a little bit more than 50 names so I think it's a little bit higher name count than I would like there's a few names in there where there's a smaller um, position where it could be sometimes I, uh, I may be taking an initial small position before I, I uh, get larger in that name or wait for an opportunity. Do you tend to turn over during the year or did you do more of that last year? How do you approach kind of turnover? I generally think lower turnover is better um, because there's a cost to turnover. Uh, uh, having said that, I think there's a healthy, uh, some turnover is healthy because it means that you're refreshing your best ideas. So for me, I think ideally a good, a good number for turnover is probably somewhere around 50% um, during the year. Although I would say that the actual turnover of the names or the top 10 names would be lower than that. The, in terms of the trend of it, I would say that um, 2020 was a high year for turnover. If you think back to that year, we were going into uh, a pandemic and a lockdown and towards the end of the year we were coming out. So there was some opportunities, it was a really attractive year for absolute as well as relative returns for my fund. Um, and so I used that higher turnover to take advantage of that. Since then, I would say that it's it's fallen off and, and normalized lower. Just uh, maybe the last question, we'll have about a minute left. I, I'm wondering um, why a North American fund? You can buy a Canadian fund, you can buy a US fund, and you can have them in the same portfolio. What is the benefit of having a fund that combines those two versus getting them separately? Yeah, well, there are two attractive places to invest, but I think this way, 
I can own the best ideas of Canada and the best ideas of the U.S., and I'm not forced to be in either market if I don't like the, the setup for either, because we have gone through periods where, as I mentioned, U.S. has historically been the best, but there has been periods, for example, like the 2000s, where um, Canada you know, was a much more attractive place. And so I think that um, should give, ideally, you know, my goal is for it to have better returns and more sort of smooth returns over time. So I think that should be the advantage. Awesome. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.